in 2021, it was the best year we've ever experienced across our entire portfolio. We had a monthly, a, a month over month rent increase average of between four to 7% on almost our entire portfolio. It's no secret that real estate is one of the best investment vehicles out there, but how can we determine which strategies will best align with our financial ambitions? Well, you've come to the right spot. Whether you're an active real estate entrepreneur, a passive investor, or looking to get into real estate investing, our goal is to provide investors with insights and strategies for building our portfolios all while protecting our capital. I'm Daniel Nichols, and this is the Two Smart Assets Real Estate Investing Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Daniel Nichols, accompanied by our guest for the week, Fernando Angelucci. And today we are the two smart assets. For those not yet familiar with Fernando, he has built a portfolio of over $200 million in self-storage assets across the country within the last four years and has diversified his investments between purchasing existing cash flowing assets, building ground up class A REIT grade facilities, and utilizing adaptive reuse conversions of big box, big box retail stores into premium self-storage. Fernando, my man, it is great to see you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Danny. Appreciate it. Yeah, pumped to dive in this conversation, talk about self-storage today. One of my absolute favorite asset classes. Before we do that, though, tell us more about your background, your story, and the path to really get to where you are today. Yeah, interesting story. So son of two immigrants from Brazil. Uh, they came to the United States with kind of like the old school American dream. Go to school, get good grades get an amazing job, hang out at the job for like 45 years, retire with a pension. Obviously, that's not the way to wealth anymore. It may have worked in the 60s and 80s, but not anymore. Unfortunately for them, when I was 16, I read the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it changed the entire trajectory <laughs> of my life to the chagrin of my father. Um, he still made me go to school and get an engineering degree. He gave me kind of the Henry Ford response, which was, you know, any color you want, as long as it's black. He said, basically any degree you want, as long as it ends in the words engineering. <laughs> um, from there, I got a job with Dow Chemical. At the time, it was a Fortune 49 company. And within 13 months, I quit that job to start real estate full-time. Wow. The entire time between 16 and 21, when I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, I devoured all the books I could find on real estate investing syndication, capital raising, went to all the uh, seminars and conferences, as long as they weren't too crazy expensive, right? I didn't, I didn't sure. have the money to go to the $30,000 ones, but the $900 for the weekend ones I was able to hit. And then uh, immediately started wholesaling houses in the Midwest. And then that immediate, that grew into a like six market wholesaling company. Wow. And then taking, I saw the amount of money my buy and hold investors were making it just in free cash flow tax advantaged every month. And then I started buying, buy and hold single family, then buy and hold multifamily, flipping multifamily, did a bunch of things in, in the middle of the stint there, you know, hard money lending, uh, short-term rentals, you know, what have you. And then eventually 2016 came around. And at the time I thought the market was going to crash in 2018. Obviously I was, I was extremely wrong, but <laughs> ended up ended up getting out of my entire rental holdings portfolio or what I call oh, wow. habitation real estate, right? Sold everything. And then in 2018, bought my first self-storage facility in Yorkville, Illinois for a million bucks. Um, none of my own money. I had to uh, scrounge up all the cash from investors. 
And then from there, um, flash forward to today, we're recording in March of 2023. We've done over $220 million in self-storage up to date. Got another $140 million planned for this year alone. Wow. I mean, what a trajectory, right? Going, doing all that stuff, yeah. you know, say graduating the engineering degree, getting a job, saying this wasn't for me, let's move into real estate, and then progressing through a number of different niches before landing on self-storage, right? So let's let's just dive in there. Right. Why self-storage, man? What about that asset class was attractive to you? And where were you seeing the opportunity at that time? Man, so I'm I'm a numbers guy, right? I'm an engineer sure. by training. I'm a very risk-averse person. So I started just looking through the numbers of different asset classes. When I decided to get out of multifamily and single family, I was looking for something that was basically returning asymmetric asymmetric returns versus risk. Okay. And so I came across basically three assets. I had mobile home parks, data centers, and self-storage is what mm. I came down to. And the reason I didn't go into mobile home parks was because I was a little scarred being a landlord in the Chicago land area where, you know, tenants rights are really strong. Um, and what I've learned from most mobile home investors is that, you know, the perfect scenario is that you never own any of the homes. You just own the pads. But in right. reality, you end up owning a lot of the the homes when people can't pay what what have you sure. and then you become into a land, you become a landlord again so that, that was out then i looked at data centers and the numbers were just fantastic the unfortunate part was the operating expenses were through the roof on the <laughs> electrical costs so i was like i don't have the startup capital to handle this right now and then i saw self stores so you know this looked good so after i i went into a further deep dive i found out that number one i had one of the highest returns across any asset class over the last five decades it was extremely recession resilient. All of this, I can go into more detail if yeah, you want. Yeah, for sure. Great, great leverage was available. Easier management, massively fragmented market, which gave opportunity towards consolidation. Um, low break-even numbers, right? Very sticky, if you will, high sticky factor. Uh, easy evictions with an air quote because uh, we are run off of lien law or property law as opposed to yep. rent or tenant, you know, tenant landlord law. And then a bunch of ancillary profit centers that you could tack on top of your rental income. So those are like the nine main reasons why I got involved. And whichever one you want to talk about, I can jump in further. I have a ton of ton of data on each each piece. Yeah, let's dive into a few of those. And let's just start with like historical trends, right? So and historical performance. So, uh, you know, obviously, yeah. like you said, it's done very well over the last, what'd you say, five decades, right? So let's dive into that a little bit and to talk about that performance and, you know, what that is, what that looks like, especially when you compare it to other asset classes within commercial real estate, stuff like that. Yeah. So, okay. So obviously when it comes to data, I'm just going to put a disclaimer that the easiest data to get is from publicly traded companies or real estate investment trusts. So I'm, sure. going to, I'm going to talk about that type of data. Just realize that these are entities that are very slow moving. Think about them as like Titanics or like giant cruise ships. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. Uh, they're not as nimble as like the you and me's out there that are doing deals that we're actively involved in hands-on all the time. So let's just look at a period between 1994 and now. Okay. So the during that time, the S&P 500 returned about seven and a half, eight percent during that period. Multifamily did all right, returning about 13% during that period. Mm -hmm. Self-storage, on the other hand, returned about 17 and a half percent. Wow. Now that four and a half percent may not seem like a lot, but you got to realize that's an extra four percent 
compounding year over year for the mm. entire study period. This study was done by the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trust, by the way. Okay. So you can go look up this data on their website. So let's just say I had $100,000 to invest starting in the beginning of the study period, which was 1994. If I put that into the S&P 500, I would be at about half a million to like 600,000 today in value, which is like a good return for your average person, right? Sure. Apartments, you'd be at about 1.8 million on that 100. So that's Easy. very good return. Right. Self-storage, on the other hand, that 100,000 would have turned into four over $4 million today. So double the return of apartment buildings, only having a 4% extra return because of the power of compounding. As humans, we don't understand. We understand it, but our brains are very difficult. It's very difficult for us to conceptualize exponential return that comes from compounding interest, right? We think sure. we tend to think linearly. So that's, that's, you know, huge, huge it's piece. Massive. But then people say, okay, well, well, Fernando, you know, if the, if the returns are that high, that means it must be a super risky asset. And I say, well, 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 actually let's look at the data. What we find is that self-storage, it has asymmetric return and risk profiles. So let's look at the last few just like hardcore economic events we've had. So let's start with the one that most people were really uh, shooken by in the real estate space, which is the 07, 09, you know, global financial crisis. Right. During that time, the S&P lost two, 22%, which is, I mean, it took almost 15, 20 years to recover that value. Yeah. During that time as well, multifamily, these are REITs, Right lost about 7% and self-storage lost about 3.8%. Now this was up to, I believe this study from the National Association of Real Estate Int Investment Trust was up to about 2017. So it did not count uh, the pandemic. Sure. Okay. okay. Yeah. So that negative 6.7% from the multifamily space like that, there's an asterisk there because yeah. if we go into the future, we're going to see where the real loss comes from. And self-storage during that time, a uh, study across all the REITs was about a three and a half percent loss. I knew a lot of investors personally that they've made their fortunes during that time. They bought amazing deals, super cheap, bought them cash or with very low leverage, uh, great bank relationships, and they were able to triple or quadruple the returns on those those deals. So it's now let's fast forward. Oh yeah, go ahead. No, no I was just saying that's it's pretty incredible those stats. You know, I love to hear actually put numbers of things, but please, yes, continue. I'm I'm a numbers guy, so I'm always going <laughs> to give it. you I'm going to yeah, give yeah. you like the 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 percentages, right? For sure. So let's move forward to the pandemic, okay? So there's a company called TREP, T R E P P. It's a commercial mortgage-backed securities research firm. They did a study over the first three quarters of the pandemic, so Q2 of 2022 to Q1, uh, beginning of Q1 of 2021, okay? Of the 1,700 CMBS loans that were made to self-storage investors, only three were more than 30 days delinquent. That is a 0.17% delinquency rate. Wow. Now, during that same time, multifamily was defaulting at a rate of 1,800% higher, 18 times the default rate of self-storage, just sure. in that, that three quarters, right? Sure. Just to show you the, the recession resilience of this asset class. And then if we want to throw some uh, additional anecdotal data on there, in 2021, it was the best year we've ever experienced across our entire portfolio. We had a monthly 
a, a month over month rent increase average of between four to 7% on almost our entire portfolio. So on some properties, we had as low as 45% increase in rents. On others, we had as high as 100% increase in rental income on those portfolios over 2021 when you know the majority of the economy, majority of investors in real estate, especially in office, retail, apartments were suffering. I mean, it was it was truly one of the worst events they have ever experienced and here we are sitting pretty with nothing no, with no concern. So it was it was a really good asset for us on the downside mitigation point. Yeah, for sure. So let's dive into that a little bit more just as well. So we're talking about, you know, self-storage. Like you said, it's really been known as a recession-resistant asset class, right? So let's dive into that. Why is that? What what are some of the drivers there? What is what is making self-storage perform so well when you see other asset classes not doing so well? Yeah. So I think there's kind of three things here. There is the macroeconomic trends, the microeconomic trends, and there's also the generational trends. Okay. Okay. So on the, let's start with the microeconomic trends, for example, you're going through a economic event that is causing people to either downsize or look for new employment or move in with relatives. What are they going to do with most of the possessions? Okay. Because the United States is an extremely consumeristic culture, um, we typically don't like to get rid. First of all, we like to accumulate, and we don't like to get rid of things that we've sure. accumulated. Right. So what is it, what happens to you know the couches and the ping pong table and the jet ski and the ATV, et cetera? It goes into a self storage facility. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Well, because you can pay, you know, an extra thousand, two thousand dollars a month in rent for that space, or you can pay eighty to two hundred bucks a month for an extra hundred square foot locker. You know, right? So very easy choice there. Sure. Second piece is the 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 macroeconomic trends. With the United States, what we've noticed is that the trend of people using self-storage has increased substantially. Um, just a few years ago, we were one in 11. Now we're one in nine wow. using self-storage. Okay. And that trend seems to be growing, especially if you're going into areas where population growth is very apparent. So areas we invest in like the Southeast, right? North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, these types of areas. Now, let's talk about the generational divide, because I think this is the most important piece of it, right? We have the baby boomers who are retiring and downsizing in, in mass to the, to the scale of like 15,000 people a day, right. just to show you. The largest generation in the U.S., okay? How they grew up was to go out, buy a house in the suburbs, a ranch that had you know three to five bedrooms, full car garage, the whole nine yards. Now those people are empty nesters. They have kids, they have grandkids, and they don't need these massive houses in the burbs. So what are they doing? They're downsizing into one or two bedroom houses or condos, but they have all this stuff that they accumulated because they were raised by people that went through the Great Depression. Sure. And during the Great Depression, the the primary thought process was do not get rid of anything because everything can be a resource. Do not give, do not recycle glass bottles because that can use as a, that can be a, a storage container. Do not get rid of any scrap metal because we can use that. Right. 
So those are the types of people they were raised with, and they they ended up accumulating and holding on to a lot of things. So when they move into these smaller living spaces that do not accommodate for that, they end up not wanting to let go of their possessions and start storing mm. those things. Now, for those on the higher end of that generational divide, the baby boomers that maybe are not in the best of health and are, you know, on the little bit on the older side and starting to to pass away, all of a sudden now their kids are inheriting these storage units with a bunch of stuff and they just don't have the the willpower to just be like, hey, I'm going to give this away or I'm going to sell all this stuff. So guess yeah. what? They end up paying on their grandma's unit for 10 years on a credit card that is auto draft every year, right? Sure. Yep. So that's number one. Now let's go to the second largest generation in the United States, which is our, the millennials. Okay. Right. Millennials okay. kind of like to rebel from the baby boomers. <laughs> Typically, the millennials are the kids of the baby boomers. Right. We don't like the big houses in the suburbs. We don't like all the stuff in the clutter. What do we like? We like to live, and I'm saying we because I'm I'm 31, <laughs> so I'm born in 1991. I'm I'm a millennial like through and through. Okay. Sure. What we like is to live downtown next to the action. Great, great, you know, entertainment, nightlife, restaurants, etc. And I am willing to opt for a 700 to a 1500 square foot apartment in a high rise. And for the additional space that I need, use a storage closet or a self-storage unit as an external closet for my, my home, right? Sure. It has my, my seasonal things, right? My summer clothes, my winter clothes, my ski gear, kayaks, bikes, what have you. And just use that more frequently than say the baby boomers. The baby boomers, how they use storage is they put something in there and they kind of set it and forget it. They never yep. see it. Absolutely. The millennials, they usually get a storage facility that's like on their commute to work. And they stop there fairly often, anywhere between one to six times per six months. Wow. So, you know, okay. they're going in and changing things out all the time, getting things that they need, things that they don't know, because for us, space is a, um, it's, it's value, uh, sure. in the city, right? You know, you can pay for an extra 300 square feet and that can be literally a thousand dollars, depending on which city you're in, or you wow. can pay, you know, a hundred bucks for an extra hundred square feet yeah. at a storage facility, 10, you know, 10 minutes away from your home. Sure. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, man. And I appreciate you breaking it down those different segments, right? The macro, the micro, and and the generational because they all make sense, right? And that really kind of like shows you why self storage. Um, the it really shows you the demand drivers there, right? And why it's been so successful. So with that in mind, what does it look like going forward? Do you see the same demand drivers going forward for the next say, you know, two years, five years, ten years, fifteen years? Do you see that kind of continuing with self storage as we move into uh, this next uh, you know time period? Yeah, so I'm seeing a lot of happening that are very favorable for the self-storage market. I'm also seeing a lot of things that I would say are, you know, some things that you need to mitigate against. So we can okay. talk about both of those. Sure. On the pro side, you have a increasingly um, alarming affordability crisis that is is occurring in our in our country. This is one of the reasons why I'm a passive investor in mobile home parks. I don't do them personally because I think I need to focus on one asset and become an expert in that asset, but I will take my personal money and invest in those to diversify my portfolio. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing is a lot of people moving back in. Right, I just saw a report of five, six days ago that said 
today, the largest number of people over 25 years old are living with their parents in history, in history. Wow. Wow. Right. And it's because they just can't afford to live alone. Yeah. So they're living with their parents. So what does that happen? What happens? You have a bunch of goods, you're storing them as well. Um, affordability crisis, we've had interest rates go from zero to basically 5% in a year. Mm-hmm. So now people that used to be able to afford a $750,000 house can afford a $350,000 house. And with right. that goes a lot of space. What are they going to do with all their possessions? They're going to store them because they don't want to get rid of them. Right. Now, I understand there's outliers out there that don't act like this. I'm actually one of those outliers. I'm a minimalist, as we were talking before on this podcast. I, I'm living out of a duffel bag and a backpack. I've been in South America for about six months. Um but that's not the normal. A lot of people like to accumulate sure. things and they have a hard time getting rid of them. Okay. So that's one of the, the trends I see that are, are helping storage out a okay. lot right now. Another trend I'm seeing is this flight towards storage as an attractive asset. You know, in the past 20 years ago, storage was kind of like the ugly stepchild, you know, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, where if you weren't getting a 15 cap day one, it wasn't a good deal. That's not the case anymore. You know, I mean, we've seen massive portfolios trade between the publicly traded REITs at three, four, five percent cap rate. So just absolutely insane numbers. Um, And I think now because of the proven track record of the recession resilience of Mm self-storage, you're seeing a lot of these alternative asset allocators placing more and more funds into self-storage and removing them from, say, the stock market, the bond market, even traditional asset, traditional alternative assets like multifamily or office or retail or medical, things like that. You know, we've seen uh, retail get completely hammered. We've seen office get completely hammered. Right. And there's billions and billions and billions of dollars in those asset classes that are now changing hands and moving into different investments. So those are some of the things that I see that are working in our favor. Right. Some of the things on the, you know, the double-edged sword, some of the things that I've seen on the, on the converse side of that is number one, compressed cap rates. You know, this, this alternative asset is all of a sudden becoming sexy, sure which means there's a competitive acquisition environment. You know, brokers are stripping upside. You're having to compete. You know, I'm, you know, I always break down the storage space into kind of three spaces. You have the REITs, which own about 20% of the market. You have the top one, next top 100 operator, which I'm a part of owning about, you know, another 10 to 12%. And then you have mom and pop operators that own about 70% of the market, 65 to 70%, you know, two or fewer facilities. Gotcha. So within that market, you're starting to see people with big money, especially at the top, starting to consolidate and they're willing to pay insane prices because they have an investment horizon that's way longer than your and I, you know, our investment horizon where we're trying to make profits in five to seven years. Some of these REITs are okay with a 30 year horizon, you know, because they have super cheap, super patient capital. It's 401k money, you know? Right. So what's the solution to this, this first of three issues? It's instead of buying retail, you buy off market. Of the 46, 47 deals we've done, 97% have been off market. And then the second piece is avoiding stabilized and buying value add, right? Where you can force appreciation as opposed to just hoping rents go up. So that's one way to curtail that. Makes sense. 
So next piece of the, you know, the second of three is oversaturation because these REITs have so much money. They're basically doing land grabs to stake a flag in the market. Construction costs are extremely cheap compared to alternative assets. So let's look, you know, I used to build multifamily apartments. You're looking at 400 to 450 bucks a foot for the same rent that I can charge per foot for self-storage that I'm able to build for 100, 120 bucks a foot. So one fourth the cost for the same rent per square foot and none of the headaches of <sighs> potentially ending up on the front page of some news story about how you kicked out grandma because she hasn't paid rent in 24 months, right? For sure. Yeah, no one's going to like to hear that. <laughs> and because of that, we have this supply index that's dropping year over year. Supply index is a ratio that allows us to understand what the supply and demand metrics are in a market. Typically, it is the net rentable square footage in a trade area divided by the population in that trade area. And it'll give you a number and that number will be anywhere between, you know, in a good, a great market to invest in, you know, like three square feet per person, four square feet per person, all the way up to terrible markets to invest in like California that are super oversaturated at 20 bucks a square foot. Right. right. I'm usually targeting things below six bucks a foot where I'm, when I'm developing. So that number has been decreasing year over year because you know, more people are getting involved, there's more cash coming in. So what is the, how do you mitigate this oversaturation piece? Mm -hmm. The importance of underwriting and not only doing feasibility studies internally, but also paying for third-party feasibility studies to double check you to make sure that you are not wearing rosy colored glasses and seeing <laughs> things that, you know, may, I've seen so many operators because I'm a, I'm a passive investor myself, right? Like last yeah. year we invested over half a million dollars in other GPs as LP positions. Sure. And I can't tell you the amount of syndicators that just like don't rely on third-party feasibility studies. It's insane. And then the last piece is kind of the, the elephant in the room, which I've been talking about here back and forth, which is REIT competition. They have mm -hmm. basically unlimited capital needing deployment. And when I say unlimited capital, I mean like their cost of capital is so cheap. You have... It's like extra space storage where their debt piece is like 2.1, 2.5%. And then they go out and raise equity using a bond in Europe paying 0.875%. Yeah. So their like combined cost of capital is on their equity stack is like 2%, 2.1%, you know? Super low, yeah. So they can buy things at four caps and instantly double their money. Versus me that I have to get, especially today in March of 2023, I have debt at 8%. Yeah. If I bought a four cap, I'm literally losing half of my capital right away. Yeah. Right? right away, yeah. They have longer investment timelines than, than we do, like I said. So the, the, the solution to this is to avoid downtown primary markets that are super mm. saturated by this recompetition that are staking flags on the ground on a 30-year horizon and play where they are afraid to get into just right now because it may not be tested or their investors won't allow them to get into those areas because they need to show quarterly returns quarter after quarter because they're publicly traded. So things like in, when we develop class a, we like to go into primary markets, you know, major MSAs, but instead of being downtown, we go into what I call the exurbs. This is where the, the, the suburbs meet the rural area where all of a gotcha. sudden you see in J.R. Horton put up, you know, 800 homes. So I build knowing that storage takes five years, the, the you know, the class A type stuff that I build that's, you know, 16, $20 million a piece sure. takes five years to be stabilized. 
So if I put if I put something in the ground now, knowing that J.R. Hurton already has a, a permit approved to build sto- you know, 800 homes around me, by the time I become stabilized, I'm completely landlocked by houses. So that's exactly where we want to be. But there- there's also the ability to go into secondary and tertiary markets when you um when you're looking for value at cash flow. Right. So you're already mm. buying these mom and pop. Remember, I mentioned that 70% of the market is these mom yeah, and pop yeah. operators that treat this like a hobby. You go into these secondary markets like Columbus, Ohio, Des Moines, Iowa, that need storage. There's already profitable facilities that are just not being run profitably. And you come in and you can take them down, increase rents, drop expenses, consolidate these into regional portfolios of 10 to 20 facilities, and then automatically get like a two to 3% premium on the cap rate that you're able to sell them at. So there's a lot of strategies in this in this business that you can mitigate these risks that I'm seeing coming down the pipe because of the consolidation effort that's going on in the market. Yeah, and it's pretty pretty incredible like, you know, you really have your, you know, you know the pulse of the market and what's going on and what strategies can be effective, right? And where to kind of like look for properties and how to position those properties, you know, whether you're going to hold them long-term or maybe exit at some point, you know, to, 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 to a large buyer or whatever, right. You're really looking at how, what the strategies are going to work either, you know, now and then down the line. So I really appreciate that, especially as a passive investor, right. That's the kind of stuff you want to hear. Like this guy really knows what he's talking about. So I appreciate you going to that level of detail. I got to be honest with you, man, we could probably, we could probably sit here and talk about this stuff all day. At least I could, and I know you could too, but uh, I got to be respectful of your time, man. So um, I got one more question before we get out of here. Um, Just tell us more about, you know, what you got going on in your company, how our investors can reach out and contact you uh, if they want to find out more about you and your business. Yeah. And what I always like to say is that if, if your listeners like what I'm talking about, maybe we can do a, you know, part two, part three, right? Oh yeah, for sure. So easiest way to contact me, I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, the atomic habits. And I find that if you put barriers in people's way to reach out to you, they just won't do it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something crazy. I'm going to give out my cell phone number. All right. And then I'm going to, for those that are a little bit more shy or timid, I'll give them a little bit more passive way to reach out. Okay. okay so my cool. cell phone number is 630 630- Four zero eight eight zero nine zero. That's six three zero four zero eight eight zero nine zero. That's my real cell phone number. You can text me; I'll answer right away. If you call me, it might take me a few hours to get back to you. Yeah. If you're a little bit more passive, feel free to go to sssse.com. Okay. Uh, that's Sam 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 Edward.com. It stands for Self Storage Syndicated Equities.com. And you can sign up for our investor list. You can follow us on social media. I give out all of my contact content and education for free. So if anybody wants to learn the storage space, not just from a passive investor side, but as an active investor side, follow us on the social media platforms. Um, we, I like to give back as much as I can because this industry has really helped me kind of fulfill the goals I've had in my life. And I just want to be able to pass that forward. So feel free. Those are the easiest ways to get a hold of me. Awesome. Fernando, we're going to make sure to put all stuff in the show notes. Dude, this has been a fantastic conversation. Really insightful. I know I've learned a lot about self-storage during this talk, so I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, real quick before we get out of here, do me a huge favor and leave a rating and review for the podcast. We're always looking to bring you guys the best insights and strategies for building our real estate portfolios, and your ratings and reviews really help with getting top guest speakers that are the best in the real estate investing business. I promise this will only take you a few seconds, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for being awesome, guys. Cheers.